Thank you, Greg. Well, good morning, everybody. Let me get my nest built here. What a great time we've had this morning, huh? Great singing. Isn't it great to everybody together all in one service? Now, for me, the downside, though, is I don't get the 8 o'clock practice message. I have to do it all in one time, so just be ready. Let me ask you, how many of you have lived in more than one place during your life? Probably every adult, right? Okay. Everybody lives somewhere. So if you want to see some different dwellings, check out a book called Material, Material World. Has anybody ever seen that? It's a big coffee table book. What they did is they went around the world basically on the same day and had everybody in these different countries take everything they owned, put it out in front of their house, and they took a picture of them in front of their house with everything they owned. Quite a contrast, as you can see here. A couple examples. One is from rural India, and the other one is a, a middle-class family from Texas. Uh, there are some worse than this, and there are some tremendously better than that, too. It makes me feel blessed, but it also makes me feel kind of materialistic, because these people in India, that is it. That's everything they own in this world. The other reference is a documentary called Human Planet. Has anybody seen any episodes of Human Planet? A couple people. Great. I highly encourage you to, I think it's an eight-part series. And what they did is they went around to different climates, from Arctic to desert, everything in between, and, and filmed about that. It's where people live, not only live, but they thrive in all of these climates. So here's a couple I thought were a little more unusual. There's the, uh, the, the people that build houses up in the jungle, up in the canopy to get away from the heat and the bugs. And you've got the people that build a house on stilts out in the ocean. Well, I've lived in 15 different places. I counted them up since I was born. And 12 of those have been since I left home and Darlene and I got married. So we've moved around quite a bit. But today we're going to look at a place that the Bible says is a great place to live. But first we have to look at the ends of the spectrum. And I call this the, the bookends, and then we'll come back to the middle. So spiritually, we're born in the same place. Sinners bound by our sins, prisoners held captive by our sinful nature. So picture yourself with a blindfold on, balls and chains on your feet in a prison cell. That's what we were held by our sins. But God has a relocation program. Through the forgiveness and salvation offered by Jesus Christ, we can be freed from that place of prison. In Romans 6.18, we are told, you have been set free from your sin. So that's one end of the spectrum. And we know the final result on the other side, where we will live for all eternity if we have trusted Christ as our Savior. Jesus told us in John 14 about that place. Let me just read a couple verses from John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled, Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So it talks about rooms. Jesus is preparing rooms for us. This can also be translated as mansions or dwelling places. Uh, it's not a hotel room. It's not a dorm room, it's not a bedroom, it's an entire home, even a mansion. 
And if we look in Revelation 21, we see some more description of this place. And let me just read a couple of verses there. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Here our mansions are described as part of the new city in a new earth. It's holy, set apart for God himself. I really kind of think of this as a double dwelling. It's us in this new Jerusalem, in the new earth, and it's God himself living with us. It says that. Perfect and forever. So that's quite a contrast to the prisoner living in his cell over here. And while all of this is worthy of considerable meditation, that's not where we're going today. Now that we have the bookends set, we're going to look at living in the middle. That's where we are today. So turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 91. I hope if you were here last week, and I hope you take advantage of the, the scripture reading for the next week and, and read it in preparation. I know, I know a lot of the guys have that I, on our prayer, morning, prayer meeting on Friday mornings. So we're going to start with just verse 1 of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the, in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, we don't use the word dwell very much. Has anybody said dwell in the last week? I, I don't think so. We, we just, that's not a word we use. We tend to use the word lives in, something like that. But dwell has the connotation of a structure to me, a physical structure. And it literally means sitting in the secret place. The thought is a calm resting that one usually does in his home. And the phrase dwells in is translated in many other places as the word refuge. And if you read through Psalms, you see that the word refuge is used many, many times. So it's similar to the word dwell here. Dwelling in the shelter of the Most High is an invitation for a refuge of peace in difficult and fearful times. Many Christians look at this secret place of the Most High, but don't enter in. We just keep plugging along, right? And maybe if we really have a problem or really need some help, we'll go move into God's shelter for a while and rest in his shadow and then maybe come back out again. This says, stay there. Dwell in the shelter. We're going to look a little bit later as, at someone who left the shelter of God, and we'll see what happened to him. Well, let's assume that a person dwells or lives in the shelter of the Most High. What's the result? Our verse says that that person will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And shadow is a conventional Hebrew metaphor for protection against oppression. If you think about, oh, a week ago maybe, you would have liked to have shade, right? Oppression from the heat. And that's the, the, the visual term that's used here. Kings were spoken of as being the shade of protection over their, their peoples. And in Numbers 14, the Israelites, the, the spies, have come back from the promised land if recall, the majority report was, we can't do this. They're, they're big, you know, they're fearsome, we can't do it. Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies, warned the people to not rebel because the protection of the peoples in Canaan was gone. 
Literally, they were saying that the people of Canaan had no shadow over them. They were unprotected and that the Israelites should go ahead and take the land. Similarly, the Lord is the protective shadow for his people. I remember walking as a child and kind of playing that game, maybe you did too, with someone, uh, walking with my dad, and you'd try to stay in the shadow, and he'd move a little, and I'd move a little, and we, you know, we'd, we'd do that, that thing. So, you know, shadows is, is such a great visual illustration because we all understand what it means. And the concept of a shadow is used in a number of other scriptures as well. Isaiah 49.2 says that in the shadow of his hand he hid me. Isaiah 51.16 says, I have put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand. Wow, wouldn't you want to be hidden and covered in the shadow of God's hand? Psalm 91 says, dwell in his shelter and rest in the shadow. In Psalm 17, David pleased for God to hide him in the shadow of his wings for protection from enemies who speak against him, coming after him like great hungry lions. We see the combination of shadow and wings a little bit later when we develop this through this psalm, but we're told that God will cover us with his feathers and give us refuge under his wings. So I want to wrap up the basic section here with just a couple more verses. Psalm 27.5 tells us that in the day of trouble, we are safe in his dwelling, hidden in the shelter of his tabernacle. And in Psalm 125.2, we are told that as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. God's protection surrounds us. Total shadow is available for us if we dwell in his shelter. So now that we have the basics looked at, let's look at the benefits. And Psalm 91 is really interesting because this first verse that we just read, it's the introduction to the entire psalm, but it's really the takeaway message. Very succinctly, that is the message today. The rest of the psalm outlines the benefits of dwelling in the shelter of the Most High and resting in the shadow of the Almighty. And many of the things we're going to look at are really, really great word pictures. You'll be able to picture a lot of the things that, that we talk about here. So let's expand into Psalm 91 and see what it says. Let's look next at verses 2 and 4. We'll come back to 3 in a minute. So 2 and 4. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. When we dwell and rest, we can say confidently, as the psalmist does, that the Lord is our refuge and fortress. These terms are used a lot in psalms, and I, I think we usually look at them as being interchangeable. But I think they're, they're similar but have some differences in meanings. They're both places of security. And I picture a refuge as a secure and peaceful place without attack. A fortress is also a place of security, but it has the connotation more of an active military installation. In a fortress, we expect attacks and we're expected to repel them. In this verse, we are told that our refuge, our place of safety, and our fortress, our defense against the devil and the world, is God in whom we trust for these benefits. Verse 4, there's that picture of the, the hen and her chicks again. Uh, she covers them with her wings to protect them from the environment and from the eyes of predators. Does that give you a feeling of, of peace and security? I've heard Darlene and other mothers talk about their children in terms of having all their chicks in the nest, having everybody close by, everybody in the house. The picture that she reminded me of, though, was 
uh, all six of our boys with us in one motel room when we would try to save money on vacation when they were younger. Uh, but she really felt like that mother hen with all the chicks right there with her. Psalm 61.4 says, I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. I don't want to go off too far on the, the wings and the chick and the hen metaphor, but this phrase of shelter of the wings is another way of saying resting in the shadow. If you think in Matthew 23, Jesus, when he came to Jerusalem, he said that he longed for the Jews to be gathered together as a hen gathers her chicks under his wing. It's a great word picture of protection, and it's similar to the shadow image that we see in Psalm 91. We're told at the end of verse 4, where it says, His faithfulness be your shield and rampart. So we think about those, and again, they're similar terms, but they're, they're different. So what is a shield? Shield is something you carry, right? And you can move it, you can deflect whatever's being thrown or shot at you. A rampart is the bulwark that we sang about in Martin Luther's hymn, a bulwark never failing. So a rampart or a bulwark is a, an earthen structure or a stone structure or a concrete structure uh, that, that's an immovable defense around us. So we have double protections, we're told here, one that's movable and one that's solid and firm in front of us. So let's go back and pick up again and look at verse 3 and then 5 through 8. So verse 3. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked." These verses represent two kinds of major problems that come before us and three examples of each of those two problems. First, there's the fowler's snare, the terror by night, and the arrow that flies by day. These represent attacks by enemies. And the snare is getting caught in something we don't see. How often have you looked back after giving in to a temptation and went, where'd that come from? You know, I'm just minding my business, doing my own thing, and the next thing I know, I gave in to whatever that temptation was. It was just so fast, you know, I got caught up in it. Many of us know what it's like to worry about things that sneak up on us, you know, the terrors in the night. Then there are the daily attacks on our faith that are right in front of us and coming at all of us. Maybe it's greed or lust or gossip or cheating or road rage or some other act of unkindness. These are all arrows that pierce us by day. And the other set of problems that are listed here are, are much more insidious. The deadly pestilence, the pestilence that stalks us by night, and plagues that destroy at midday. The passage does not say that these things will not come into our lives, but that we should not fear them. It's not about the actual situations, but our preparation and our reactions to them. We may be delivered from pestilences and plagues, or we may be delivered by walking through them with him, or we may be delivered straight from them into his arms. Psalm 23 says that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. Now another view that the commentators talked about is that the psalmist here is, is corresponding his storyline 
to the Exodus storyline as a way to continue the teaching the truths of God's word to the people. Israel was trapped and enslaved in Egypt by Pharaoh. And when the plagues came upon the Egyptians, the Israelites had no fear of those horrors. By the end of the plagues, the Israelites had seen thousands and tens of thousands of Egyptians taken down and taken out by God for punishment for Pharaoh's hard heart. But God's people had been protected from the plagues and from the fear of the plagues. Any of these things could really happen to us. If we take these dangers as a, in a literal sense, they represent real things in our lives and real things that we fear. If we take them metaphorically, then they become a wide range of ills, a comprehensive list of what faces us each day. But the message from the psalmist is that there is nothing God's people need to fear. There are no exceptions hidden in the fine print at the bottom. Paul reminds us in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And specifically in verse 37, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. So remember that psalms are songs. And I don't know how this one was sung or broken up, but to me it seems like we're kind of at the end of the first stanza. And then first, verse 9 starts us over again. So we ended this first stanza with some pretty heavy things to think about. And now we're brought back to the main point, making the most high our dwelling. So let's look at verses 9 to 13. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. We're reminded again that, that he's our refuge and that he will protect us. And the writer really makes it personal here because he's saying that God is his refuge. And doesn't it mean a lot more for you when somebody says, this is my experience, this is my faith, this is what I believe? And I think the, the part of verse 10 there really is the second part of the stanza of the song that, that correlates to five and six above about not having the fear of things. We're told that harms and disasters will not come near us. God often does protect us. We also know that sometimes things do come, but like above, we're told to not fear them, but to trust and follow him. The Bible gives many examples of angels rescuing and helping people. And if we look back through church history, uh, we see a number of accounts of people, maybe you even know someone who's had an experience where an angel has provided uh, protection and provision for them. The psalmist is reminding us not to forget all of these benefits from God. What about this lion called a great lion and the deadly snake called a cobra and the serpent? These are terms that the Bible often uses to describe Satan. They may also figuratively represent difficulties that come into our lives. Either way, God has given us the authority and the power to defeat the schemes of the devil and put him under our feet as Jesus did. As with many psalms, the psalmist wraps up with a summary of praises to the Lord. So let's look at verses 14 to 16. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him. I will honor him. With long life will I satisfy him. 
and show him my salvation. Remember that this is a psalm for people dwelling and resting. So we have the benefits that were given in more detail in the middle that the psalmist now summarizes at the end, kind of at a higher view. We have rescue, we have protection, we have answering our prayers, we have him being with us, we have deliverance, we have honor, we have long satisfying life, and finally we have salvation brought home for eternity, that, that second bookend that we talked about. If we come back to the idea that the psalmist is, is uh, looking at this and, and describing it in relation to Egypt and the promised land for greater teaching of the people, then we can think about Exodus 6, 6 through 8. where God says to to Moses there, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Well, these verses raise a question that's really our next discussion point here. But can he do it? You want to know that you're in the right shadow. Can the one making the shadow really protect you and give you the rest that's stated here in Psalm 91? In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells the Israelites at least twice that they are being protected and guided by God's mighty hand and outstretched arm. Jeremiah 27.5 tells us, With my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are in it, and I give it to anyone I please. God is sovereign. Psalm 98.1 says, Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The one who has worked salvation for us is the one making the shadow for us to rest in. Psalm 121 that we had up here earlier, and this is a side comment. All Frank knew was that I was going to preach on 91, and he brings up 121, and that's one of the references that I have here. 121 is great. the, The part I really liked about it was that it says that the Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps. And that's that double emphasis that we see in the Bible. When it's repeated twice, that means, think about it, this is really doubly, this is important. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But can he do it? Uh, I think this is the correct place to use that overused word. Absolutely, he can do it. So let's look at a real life case study. The Bible gives us an account of a person who appeared to move out of the shelter of the Most High and out from under the shadow of the Almighty. His name was Lot. And Lot was Abraham's nephew. And the two of them and their households and their flocks all lived together. Abraham was blessed greatly by God. And he grew in livestock, in in servants, in silver, in gold. And the animal and people numbers became so great that they couldn't share this this space anymore. So Abraham told Lot that to avoid quarreling, you pick the direction you want to go, and I'll go the other way. So Lot looked, he saw great plains, well watered and grass, and he chose that area. And then he moved 
over there. Genesis 13, 12 says that Lot pitched his tents near Sodom. Does that raise a red flag with anybody? Yeah, he moved towards Sodom. Verse 13 adds that the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So then we fast forward to Genesis 19, where God is determined to destroy Sodom because of its horrible wickedness. He sends two angels to rescue Lot and his family. Where do we find Lot in Genesis 19? He's sitting in the gate of the city. So not only did he move into town, he's also in the ruling council now of this utterly wicked city. The angels have to physically extricate Lot, his wife and his two daughters, but the men pledged to marry his daughters, they just laugh at Lot and they say, we're not going, we're going to stay here. And you know what happens next? God obliterates the city. It is, it's gone, people, everything, it, it's gone. Well, all of us have moved out from under God's shelter and shadow at some time. Maybe we've done it many times. Uh, maybe that's where some of you are today. You're not, under, you're not dwelling with, in his shelter and you're not under his shadow. So if, t- if that's so, today's the day to consider the words of Psalm 91. You know, usually we talk about Lot in terms of his poor decision-making and the bad outcome. But I think there's another way to look at this story of Lot. I think we should look at it that though Lot moved, God did not. He still cared deeply for Lot as he cares for you and for me. And there are consequences, we know that, that may have to play out in our lives. But God sent angels specifically to rescue Lot, and God comes looking for us too. He loves us, and he wants us to be in that safe and secure place, dwelling in his shelter, resting in his shadow, where he is the refuge and fortress in whom we can trust. I like the Petra song that has a line, you say you've walked 10,000 steps away, but don't you know it's only one step back? That's one of the things I really like about communion. For me, I tell people, it's like getting me back on track. However many steps I've moved away, when it's communion time, I remember what Jesus did, boom, one step back. So I, I appreciate that, Dale, in the communion times. So today, dwell in the shelter of the Most High and rest in the shadow of the Almighty. As the worship team comes back up, would you all please stand for our blessing this morning? What I'd like you to do is hold your hands out like this, in posture of receiving something. And I'm going to read a blessing from 1 Peter for us this morning. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded or shadowed by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. Amen.